Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. For this episode, we're responding to the question, how can we combat misinformation? The internet has more or less always been a lucky dip when it comes to knowledge. On the one hand, it represents the best humanity has to offer, with it being like a town square that connects people, provides access to cutting-edge research, and democratises ideas like never before. But it's also part Wild West, part clown car, part Pandora's box, where it's largely unfiltered and anyone can contribute, and there are lucrative opportunities for people to act in bad faith and to deceive. You can find whatever you're looking for, but that doesn't mean that it's going to line up with reality. Doing your own research can be great if you want to learn a new skill or do some background work on some obscure topic, but it's also fraught with danger if we don't go in with our eyes wide open. No one wants to be gullible, and we pride ourselves for being independently minded, and yet we're way more dependent on our social groups than we probably realise, which makes us susceptible to believing falsehoods. Today, we're going to jump into the wild world of misinformation, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. So it's a bit of fun and a bit of horror at the same time. Conspiracy theories can often be like a Frankenstein's monster where they just cobble together old stuff and rehash them in a new form, often piggybacking on current issues. Today we have John Cook joining us. John is a senior research fellow with the Melbourne Centre for Behavioural Change at the University of Melbourne. He researches how to use critical thinking to counter misinformation, He created the Cranky Uncle Game, combining critical thinking, cartoons and gamification to build resilience against misinformation. He currently works with organisations like Facebook, NASA, the Sabin Vaccine Institute and UNICEF to develop evidence-based responses to misinformation. In 2013, he published a paper quantifying the 97% scientific consensus on climate change, which has been highlighted by President Obama and the UK Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron. You also may have seen his work referenced by John Oliver, who hilariously and somewhat chaotically showed what a balanced debate looks like if the weight of the scientific community were to square off against the naysayers. He also founded Skeptical Science, a website that won the 2011 Australia Museum Eureka Prize for the advancement of climate change knowledge, and he's co-authored and contributed to a vast amount of handbooks and textbooks summarising communication best practices, such as the Debunking Handbook and Conspiracy Theory Handbook. So he's definitely the right kind of guy to help us navigate the world of epistemology and critical thinking. He's joining us today from the sunny shores of Queensland, away from his Melbourne office, surrounded by plants and in the sweltering heat. G'day, Aaron. Yeah, it's very humid here, much more humid than in Melbourne. (laughs) Right. Well, uh, I hope you can uh, bear up all right. Uh, Let's get into today's conversation. Uh, You founded the Cranky Uncle Game. Um, That's probably quite an obscure thing for most people listening, but um, could you tell us, uh, are you in fact that cranky uncle or is it mostly referring to someone else? I'm getting crankier with each passing year, so I'd say that the distance between me and Cranky Uncle is is diminishing, but (laughs) but, um, more accurately, it's really based on conversations I've had with my own family members. And then as I talk to other people, I've realised that the cranky uncle is, seems to be ubiquitous. Everyone has a member of their family who, who thinks that they know better than the world's experts. <laughs> For sure. So today we're looking at how we combat misinformation. Uh, how did you become interested in, in studying truth professionally? Um, do, do you have like um, some favourite conspiracy theories that pulled you into this world a bit? Uh, it actually began with... Um, Cranky uncle conversations, actually, or, or actually not not an uncle specifically, a cranky father-in-law. 
So yeah. we would have conversations about climate change and he had his conspiracy theories about not trusting the climate scientists and not believing that climate change was happening or caused by humans. And it was probably the fact that I was a son-in-law who didn't want to w- lose an argument to his father-in-law that motivated <laughs> me to start researching, well, what actually does the science say about these arguments that I was hearing around the family dinner table? And as I researched it, um, I realised that other people were probably having similar conversations and it eventually mm. led to me publishing the Skeptical Science website, which was debunkings of climate misinformation arguments. Yeah, sure. And so by now I'm sure you've heard like basically everything out there. Um, you were telling me, like hinting at the other day, uh, about uh, a conspiracy theory about Australia. Could you tell us that one? Yeah. Well, um, when I was living in the US I, uh, from 2017 to 2020, I heard a conspiracy theory that Australia doesn't exist, that it's all mm. um, it's all a big hoax, it's been faked. All the Australian actors like the Hemsworths, they're all just, you know, faking it to um, to prop up this conspiracy. Yeah. And when you when you dig into a conspiracy like that, it just gets more and more implausible because you have to go back right to the 1700s when um, when when like, you know, English the first fleet came out to Australia, uh, and the conspiracy is that, well, they, the first fleet weren't actually bringing convicts out to Australia. They were just sailing them out, out of England and then just throwing them overboard. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then they had to keep propping up the conspiracy theory that Australia exists right into the modern age. Yeah, I'm sure the, the thread for that one is quite entertaining, um, <laughs> follow that sort of conversation. Um, but, yeah, I won't be adopting that one anytime soon. So you've got a, a pretty impressive background when it comes to uh, your areas of study and research, uh, melding psychology, philosophy, and science. Uh, why did you decide to make everyone else look bad in this way? <laughs> well, it's, it's not about trying to make people look bad. It's about trying to build up people's resilience so they're less likely to get misled mm. because nobody likes being tricked. No. And there, there are common tricks used across all different topics uh, so it's just about learning those tricks and uh, just being um, less vulnerable to being misled. Yep. And so with the nature of your work, those three disciplines have come together in a certain way. C- could you walk us through your connection um, in, in those three areas of study? Yeah, I started in psychology. Um, well, no. Well, I started with just running a blog, Skeptical Science, and debunking myths, uh, having a background in physics. And, and then a cognitive scientist emailed me and said, there's a lot of research into how to debunk misinformation and you're doing it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, that was a big eye-opening moment for me because I I learned that there was a science to science communication and that eventually led to me doing a PhD in cognitive psychology, researching how better to um, debunk or neutralise misinformation. So the psychology research directed me towards a solution, which was explain the techniques used to mislead, inoculate people against the tricks of misinformation. Uh, so that that's where the psychology started, but it directed me towards critical thinking. Mm. If you want to learn the tricks of misinformation, you need critical thinking as a tool to help you do that. So I started working with critical thinking philosophers on that. And, and then the big question was, 
okay, if we need to explain the, the tricks of misinformation to people, how can we do that in a way that is engaging, it's interesting, it's even fun even? Mm. And by coincidence, I happened to be at a misinformation conference in Washington, D.C., and I met some game developers. And we just got talking and we started collaborating and eventually we developed the Cranky Uncle game, yeah. which combines the psychology, the critical thinking into a game. Yeah, awesome. And is that that's still running at the moment? Yeah, we launched it in December 2020. Uh, we worked on it over the first year of the pandemic. And so that so the Cranky Uncle game has been available since then. It's free. It's open to the public. Hmm. Uh, but what we've been doing in the last year on top of that has been working on a Cranky Uncle vaccine version right. in, in collaboration with UNICEF. Yep. And we're just in the process now of pilot testing that in Uganda and Kenya, in East Africa. Uh, after that, we will continue to develop develop versions of that game for different parts of the world. Yeah, and that um, that's a nice segue, actually, because uh, obviously, yeah, you started in the kind of climate disinformation space, um, and now you're yeah working in the vaccine space. So a lot of your research seems to be kind of general principles that can apply across a number of different areas. Could you maybe share um, why these issues are so important to you or why you've kind of found this as a, a passion area and something that you can commit your professional life to? I first, uh, like, obviously, um, <laughs> I started getting interested in this for fairly silly reasons, like beating my father-in-law in an argument. Um, as mm. I dug deeper and deeper into the climate change issue, I realised that climate change isn't just an environmental issue, it's a human issue. And the people who are most affected by climate change are the ones who are least contributing to it. It's developing parts of the world are often getting the worst climate impacts while they've emitted the the smallest amount of pollution. Mm. So I realised that climate change is actually a social justice issue. And that's where I started to get a fire in the belly about about the issue of climate change. Mm. And... There are lots of different ways that you can that everyone can contribute to the issue of climate change. I chose misinformation as that one thing that I was going to focus on and try to um, have as big of an impact on that one thing as possible. Uh, but the solution that I, I got directed towards through the research, which is critical thinking, is applicable to like, critical thinking can help fight misinformation across all topics. Yep. So the, the same solutions I'm working on with climate change can also apply to vaccination uh, and other issues. And those are all important issues too. Like vaccination is obviously a very human issue and uh, it's an opportunity to use my research to try to save lives. Yeah. So um, so now it's, yeah, it's, it's always about how do you make society better for people? Um, but you can do that across different issues, even using the same tools. Yeah, and it's nice to know that like something that you're working on can have real-world uh, effects and, and can change uh, things for the better. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a, a great kind of segue into where we're going to be digging today. We've got other episodes that we're, we're spending time on climate change. Um, so this will be more general where we'll, where we'll look at misinformation, disinformation and conspiracy theories uh, in general um, at a kind of wider societal level rather than zooming in on any one particular issue. But yeah, we'll have a few case studies that we kind of go through today. But first of all, it's probably pretty important to define some of the terms that we'll be discussing. Um, So could you tell us, John, in your mind, what's the difference between, first of all, misinformation and disinformation? And then secondly, the difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory? So misinformation is any 
information that's false, regardless of what the intent of the misinformer is. So someone might genuinely believe the misinformation that they're, you know, posting on social media or telling people, or they might be intentionally trying to deceive you. You, you don't you don't know what the intent is with misinformation. Mm. Disinformation is false information deliberately intended to deceive. So disinformation is about the intent and how people are actively, intentionally trying to mislead people. Yeah, so it's a much more coordinated thing rather than a, a spontaneous, innocent kind of thing. Yeah, with misinformation, a lot of it is people genuinely believing something and sharing it with, with their friends and family. Um, not intentionally trying to deceive people. No, usually accompanied by like a cat meme or something. Yeah, well, yeah, we're, yeah, I mean, memes can really help something go viral. We're actually working on an experiment right now where we're testing competing memes, like a, a misinformation meme and a debunking meme and, and seeing... That sounds like a great reality TV show. <laughs> Com- competing memes, yeah. And then uh, mm. they get whittled down to the, the finalist meme at the end of the show. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, that's a bit of the difference between misinformation and disinformation. So it's about kind of uh, intent. Um, and then what's the difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory? So real-world conspiracies do exist. Um, examples are the tobacco industry conspired to deceive the public about the the harmful effects of smoking or the addictive effects of smoking. Volkswagen conspired to um, hide how much pollution their cars were emitting. So so there are examples of real world conspiracies, but there are much as much greater number of conspiracy theories which are like false theories about a, a conspiracy. And uh, it can be difficult to tell the difference. How do you know if, if it's a real conspiracy versus a baseless conspiracy theory? The general principle we recommend, and we lay this out in the conspiracy theory handbook, is that there are distinct traits of conspiratorial thinking, and those are red flags. So look out for those red flags when someone's promoting something that might be a conspiracy theory. Uh, for example, pattern detection. People will just see two things happening, two random things happening around the same time or around the same place and, and automatically join the dots and say those things might be connected. COVID happened in 2019. 5G came out in 2019. Well, those two things must be connected and 5G therefore must cause COVID-19. Uh. You know, it's just taking random dots and joining lines between them. Another uh, telltale trait of conspiratorial thinking is immunity to evidence. You, whenever a conspiracy theorist hears new evidence that disproves their conspiracy, rather than update their beliefs, change their minds about their conspiracy theory, they instead um, add that new evidence into their conspiracy and say, well, obviously that evidence exists because the conspiracy people generated it to trick us and, and their conspiracy just gets larger and, and more complicated. So, in other words, there's nothing that you could say to a conspiracy theorist that would change their mind because they just keep expanding their conspiracy theory. Yeah, that's what they want you to think. Exactly. Uh, And in contrast, someone who is being showing healthy scepticism is also open to new evidence. So so someone might be exploring a conspiracy uh, and, you know, it's, it's fine and reasonable to explore whether a conspiracy might exist, but you need to be open to evidence uh, rather than 
immune to evidence that might disprove your theory. And um, in the past, uh, many conspiracy theories seemed fairly kind of frivolous and yeah, almost almost fun, um, kind of harmless. So you got like Elvis being alive, uh, UFOs, the moon landing being faked, those sorts of things. Uh, do you think conspiracy theories have changed in nature much over time? Well, I mean, they've always been with us. And even the latest kind of fads in conspiracy theories often have a lot of legacy from the past. For example, like the QAnon conspiracy theories, which have just gone viral in the last couple of years, you know, a lot of them involve like what, what sound like completely random, wacky stuff, like Hollywood celebrities drinking baby blood to get a mortal life kind of stuff. And you're thinking, what? Where does that come from? Mm. But those kind of conspiracy theories date back to medieval times when in Europe there were often like small villages with conspiracy theories that anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that there were Jews living in that small village who would drink the blood of children for whatever evil reason, or that there were basements where they would hide children or capture children and keep them captive. Uh, And we're seeing echoes of those old medieval conspiracy theories now. So in the one sense, there is a lot of, uh, I guess, rehashing of old conspiracy theories in even these new modern versions. Mm. But what's new is... Uh, technology's ability to amplify and spread conspiracy theories much quicker. In the past, it, w- it would just be spread by word of mouth. Yeah. Now it can get tweeted and seen by millions in seconds. Yeah. Uh, and algorithms can amplify them. The social media platforms do well when people engage with social media posts. Yeah. Uh, and misinformation gets a lot of engagement. People like them, people share them. People get angry about them. Yeah, they evoke emotional reactions. They're shocking they're, um, you know, often very like, sensationalist. And that kind of stuff gets shared a lot, which is good profit-making for the social media platforms. Mm. So that's what's different about the ability for conspiracy theories to spread around these days. Yeah, so the internet has had a pretty wild effect in just getting the information out there, the, the dissemination of these ideas. Yeah, not just um, that. It, it, I mean, on a simple level, it's possible for an individual to potentially reach millions, whereas before there were gatekeepers like mainstream media. It's not just that, though. It's also that there are algorithms that can help amplify sensationalist posts and they can also clump people together into echo chambers because it's also in the social media platform's interest, financial interest, to show you posts that you're already interested in. They're not going to show a Greenpeace you know, member posts about right-wing political stuff because they know they're not going to hate it. And, vi- and conversely, they're not going to show a political conservative, you know, Greenpeace environmental stuff because they know they're not going to want to click on that. So they tend to show you things that you already believe and that can, that can put people in echo chamber bubbles. Yeah, and it's part of the wider kind of uh, effects of polarisation, isn't it, that we're consistently seeing these, uh, basically this online world where people can believe whatever they want to believe um, and you will find like-minded people um, now that the internet's out there. In the past, it was obviously much harder to do that if you were the only guy in your village that believed the crazy thing. Mm. Um, But now you can always find people to support your views, can't you? Yes. Uh, And also conspiracy theories in different topics are now starting to connect. So the climate deniers are now forming alliances with the anti-vax community, 
mm. and the QAnon community. So you're starting to get this amplification even between different communities. Connected with that, um, one particular author that we both uh, have talked about, Joseph Yusinski, was uh, talking about that we're, in some ways, we're all conspiracy theorists. There's, there's, there's always uh, at least one thing that we believe that doesn't line up with the reality. But he was also saying that for people that are more uh, vulnerable, more predisposed to believe in conspiracy theories, they'll often accumulate conspiracy theories as well. Um, and they even ones that seem contradictory at first glance, uh, but they can all be kind of syncretized and brought into this one kind of way of seeing the world. Um, so I guess, yeah, my question related to that is, uh, is that something that you've seen in, in that if you believe one, you're likely to believe many more? Uh, yes. Yeah, conspiracy, I think it's my... Um my PhD supervisor, Stefan Lundowski, who wrote a paper, which I think was titled Conspiracy Theories of a Feather Flock Together or something like that. He loves writing very colourfully titled scientific papers. But uh, yeah, if, if someone believes one conspiracy theory, uh, and again, distinguishing between uh, reasonable, genuine scepticism and then the more extreme version of conspiratorial thinking, once you go down that rabbit hole of conspiratorial thinking and being distrustful of institutions and scientists and scientific data, then that that becomes a pattern of thinking and you're more likely to be distrustful of, of other scientific data from other areas as well. Climate denial has been going for decades and it's been creating this fertile ground so that when the pandemic happened, there was already this growing um, conspiratorial mindset of distrusting scientific data and it, and you saw the same people who were attacking climate models, now attacking epidemiological models, saying you can't trust the science, you can't trust these models, we shouldn't be doing what the scientists are advising us to do. And uh, yeah, that um, fits in well with my next question. There does seem to be a new level of mistrust and angst directed at many institutions, not just science, um, but you've got government and academia and the media as well. Uh, they seem to be the four big targets that um, yeah, conspiracy theorists will oppose. Do you have a theory on why these powerful institutions have, have seemingly lost their clout with these people that are kind of disillusioned with them? Well, I mean, once someone decides to reject a scientific consensus, then how do you explain how all the scientists are saying one thing and you believe something else? How do you, like think of it from the conspiracy theorist point of view. If, if, a, if a person thinks, well... Yeah, maybe 97% of climate scientists agree that humans are causing global warming, but I don't think that humans are causing global warming. How do you explain that 97% of climate scientists? Are they all accidentally wrong in the right direction or are they all colluding to deceive you? Inevitably, once people deny a scientific consensus, it's an inevitable result that they'll also start to develop conspiratorial thinking about that the scientific community uh, and then once you go down that rabbit hole, as I was saying, of of rejecting science and rejecting what the scientific community as an institution is doing, then that that type of thinking um, starts to spread into distrust of other institutions as well. Mm. That, um, that's not to say that governments should be entirely trusted. Mm. Like, a, like, like healthy scepticism is a good thing, mm. um, but we just need to differentiate between healthy scepticism and nihilistic denial. Yeah, and it kind of connects back with what you were saying earlier in that um, genuine conspiracies have happened and probably in all of these institutions at, uh, at certain points throughout history. So 
at some point you can, you can you can have a level of sympathy to go I can understand why someone would be suspicious of these groups because at times they have betrayed our trust but yeah it, it, you want to ask the question though but am, am I rejecting it am I rejecting them for rational reasons does it make sense um, or is there something else at play uh, in my inner life that is triggering me to go down these rabbit holes yeah I think that we all as if if we would like to think of ourselves as being healthy skeptics we should all check ourselves so I should check am I immune to evidence or do I do I consider any new evidence put in front of me am I we we Humans are hardwired to detect patterns. Um, if we see the leaves rustling, we look. Is there something? Is there something happening in that bush? Is a yeah, T Rex? Is a yeah? Is a T Rex going to jump out and eat me? So, so that's hardwired in our brain to to detect patterns. You know, when we can look at random dots on a screen and, and you can just sort of see things. You know, often I'll just stare at tile patterns. And think, oh, I can see a face there, or there's a little <laughs> animal in the corner. You know, that's that's human nature. Mm. But we just need to check ourselves that we're not taking that natural pattern detection too far, and just seeing causal links between random things that are unconnected. Yeah. So it's that thing of doubting your doubts, being skeptical about your skepticism, examining your own thought processes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, honing in on some of these institutions, there are certain groups that like to bash the mainstream media uh, as if they're always up to, to something. Could you maybe explain the concept of epistemology and why people look to vastly different authorities for information and finding truth? Yeah, I mean, epistemology is about how do we think about knowledge? Where does our understanding come from? Because we can get our knowledge from different sources, uh, well, we can, we do, we, and lots of different sources. Uh, so we have to consciously think, why do I believe what I believe? Or how do, how do I get to those beliefs? And, you know, there are, there are many different sources. When it comes to scientific issues like climate change or vaccination, peer-reviewed science is the most um, reliable source of knowledge. It's not perfect. Science is an ever-evolving process. But the peer review process where experts review each other, other experts' work is like a spam filter on steroids. Again, it's not 100% foolproof, but it's, it's better than anything else in terms of, of raising the quality of information we get. Yeah, and it puts checks in place, doesn't it? Like it, it actually doubts humans' innate goodness, doesn't it, to say that actually we can be self-serving in the way that we go about research and testing stuff. Yeah, not just goodness, but... Every individual person, whether they're a scientist or not, has their own biases, has their own blinkers, and peer review uh, is just the first step. Then the, the much longer step is replication. Once research, scientific research is published, then over years and decades, uh, other scientists will try to replicate it. They may fail, they may disprove the original study, or they might reaffirm it and find the same results. And gradually over time, as, as scientific results get replicated over and over and over again, we get more confident that our scientific understanding is accurate. Mm. That's the long scientific process. It's not about, science isn't about mm. we know everything and we know the state of the world and that's a fact. Science is a process of understanding our world better and better, step by step, and uh, it just gradually gets clearer over time. 
and just testing cause and effect over and over and over again and the accumulation of knowledge that kind of comes from the various tests that have happened over human history that have been recorded. Mm. Um, so changing tact a little bit here, historically the powerful have always had access to things like spin and misdirection and propaganda uh, to consolidate their power and turn public opinion. And it's something that you see as a bit of a hallmark of authoritarian governments um, and also pre-democratic civilizations who would use myths to almost deify their, their rulers and their ruling classes. Um, giving them like a, a sense of legitimation. It almost seems like conspiracy theories are kind of the inverse to this. Uh, you know, they're primarily used to delegitimize authorities. Would you agree with that? So, I mean, certainly conspiracy theories are about delegitimizing you know, institutions and authorities. Um, and sometimes authorities do need to be legitimized if, if they are authoritarian governments, for instance. Although I don't know whether you necessarily have to resort to conspiracy theories to do that. No, truth will suffice. And another thing about the difference between conspiracies and conspiracy theories is it is rare that a conspiracy is revealed by someone in their garage pouring over the internet. Usually they're revealed by either investigative journalists or whistleblowers. Mm. So um, that's, that's one of the other key differences between conspiracies and conspiracy theories. Yeah, coming back to your question... Uh, about, I guess, throughout history, we have seen people in positions of power using the tools of misinformation to really control the public. And, and that is very problematic. Uh, and the modern version of that, well, I mean, you do have governments such as Russia using misinformation tools to, to justify their invasion of Ukraine. But we also see very rich corporations like the tobacco industry or the fossil fuel industry pouring um, millions or billions of dollars into misinforming the public. Uh, and so, um, and their motive is just to keep making profit, just to delay action to, you know, to stop people using their destructive products so that they can just maintain profits for as long as possible. So the goal there is delay. Mm. But, but ultimately the goal is to maintain their position of power. Uh, and again, I think that the, the answer to that is... Sunlight is the best disinfectant. So we just need to mm. shine a light on what they're doing, uh, which is really what ultimately what my work comes back to. It's about exposing the techniques used to mislead so that people become resilient against misinformation. Yeah. Speaking of sunlight, I hear it's pretty good to combat COVID. Does that um, line up <laughs> yeah. with your UNICEF work? Uh, I mean, during 2020, when uh, there was a moment where I think the US president was arguing Sunlight can kill COVID, so we need to shine light into people's bodies. And the scientific experts were just kind of shrinking into the corner. Kind of, is this really happening? So, um, <laughs> yeah, and a humorous again, moment. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, it was humorous. On the other hand, it was horrifying. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it really reaffirms that we need to be listening to scientific experts on issues of science because the alternative is is always going to be less idea. It would seem remiss of me not to talk about two of the most uh, recent and interesting case studies when it comes to conspiracy theories. Uh, could you tell our audience about the birds aren't real movement and then alternatively the dark and disturbing world of QAnon? Well, we can spend a bit more time in that. Yeah, so the birds aren't real conspiracy was a deliberate hoax created by someone who wanted to create a parody 
of conspiracy theories. So he just started promoting this idea that birds aren't real. They're actually robots created by the government to spy on us. And the, the idea of it is that once you start pulling back the onion layers on a conspiracy theory and taking it down to its logical consequences, it just becomes more and more implausible. Like, what would it actually mean if every bird that you saw was a surveillance robot created by the government? Could they actually do that? How much would that cost? What are the technical limitations? How do they keep it secret for so long? How many people would be involved and why have none of those people blown the whistle on this conspiracy? Uh, How does it happen across every country in the world? So uh, eventually, yeah, the birds aren't real creator came clean and said, this is hoax. And I think all the people who were amplifying it were doing it in a parody kind of way. I think everyone knew that it was it was too ridiculous. But the idea was really to to illustrate the implausibility of, of some of these widespread conspiracy theories. Yeah, sure. By the sounds of it, you're saying that most people were in on the joke, but do you know if it gained much of a following or people who genuinely believed it? Anecdotally, I've never heard of anyone actually believing it. Like, there's always this danger of... What's that principle where parodies of extremism are indistinguishable from the real thing? I don't think that that happened in this case. Like, I'm not aware of anyone actually believing it. Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, that contrasts nicely then uh, for one that did genuinely snowball to quite alarming proportions um, is the conspiracy of QAnon. I heard the other day, Will Summer, who reports on it from the Daily Beast and has just written a book, uh, was reporting that according to like polls around the US, there are around 10 million people that believe the QAnon conspiracy theory. So, uh, John, could you share more about what that conspiracy theory is and what has kept that going? So the QAnon conspiracy theory really developed over the course of um, Donald Trump's presidency. And a lot of it was focused on villains. The uh, deep state. Yeah, well, there was the deep state and it was also just that there were people who would um, capture, like kidnap children and eat them or sexually abuse them or or do lots of um, really weird extreme stuff. But a lot of it was also about Donald Trump and this theme that, He had a secret plan, uh, even after he lost the election and there was a handover of government, that there would be this reckoning, this moment where the the Democrats and President Biden would all be arrested, Trump would regain power. So it's just this overwhelming faith that Trump was in control and everything he did, even the things that seemed wrong or ridiculous or counterproductive were all part of the plan. Like it began with this mysterious shadowy figure, Q, who claimed to be an insider in the US government, like with security clearance, was just posting very cryptic statements about things that were going to happen. And he, 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 I'm just saying he, like assuming that it's a he. Could be a lizard. Yeah. Well, yeah. When you mentioned that 10 million people, I immediately thought of a survey finding that 12% of Americans believe that lizard people exist, but uh, but I'm digressing. Uh, with with Q, then, it, it just built this momentum and people would interpret his cryptic statements in different ways. And it became a bit of uh, like, it had a lot of the patterns of a computer game where you're, you're trying to, um, you, you've got all these different clues and you're trying to search through the real world, trying to find 
patents. It's a, it's about patent detection again. And you just link random things and try to match them to the cryptic clues that that Q was um, posting. Uh, and that's quite an addictive um, game to play for people. Uh, and so um, it persisted. Uh, it had real-world consequences. Like conspiracy theories do matter. Uh, I was driving through Washington, D.C. with a friend, and he said, see that pizza place there? That's where a guy went in with a gun, shot a bullet into the pizza place because he believed the QAnon conspiracy theory that, that there, was, there was a basement underneath this pizza parlor where they were keeping child slaves or something. Yeah, I immediately asked if we could go have dinner there because out of a morbid curiosity, the pizza was great. But, um, but it just shows that people believe these things and it has real-world consequences. It's not just funny theories on the internet. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned jokingly the 5G conspiracy theory about COVID earlier. People were setting 5G towers alight mm. on fire because they believed that 5G was giving them COVID. Yeah. So, so when people believe extremist conspiracy theories, they do things like damaging the real world, hurting people, trying to overcome an, a democratic election because they believe conspiracy theories that the election was stolen. Uh, and so uh, we can't just ignore or laugh at conspiracy theories. We do need to reduce their negative impact on society. Absolutely. Just with that Pizzagate example, later, I think in a police interview or something like that, the uh, the gunman was purported to have said, admitted that he was he was wrong and that he had received bad intel, <laughs> which bad is intel. quite the yeah. understatement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it, they will sometimes um, realise the error of their ways in hindsight. But when they're deep in these conspiracies, conspiracy theories, um, you know, their belief can be absolute. And because of that immunity to evidence, it's really difficult to dissuade them otherwise. Yeah, and just other real-world impacts. Um, even here in Australia, uh, it seems a lot of people know someone that has gone down a QAnon rabbit hole. I personally uh, had that with family. And just, yeah, seeing the... The stories of, of people whose lives changed after they believed these things and it just pulled them out from reality um, and tore families apart and um, ends up being quite tragic. Yeah, it can be quite destructive. You know, I've had my cranky uncle conversations where they might have conspiracy theories about climate change or vaccination or whatever. In my, my experience, has never got to that QAnon level where they've taken on the mindset of almost a cult member and, and it's destroyed relationships. Although my conversations haven't helped their relationships, I guess. But so, um, but yeah, it's hearing stories of families being torn apart by this cult-like behaviour is it's it's really upsetting, actually. One thing that I found pretty confronting about QAnon as well is the religious symbolism connected with it, uh, in particular Christian symbolism tied up with it. Um, So there seems to be like, as you were saying, it almost functions like a cult, but it's this weird kind of Christian political cult, very much tied up in the temporal here and now rather than thinking about, say, for example, the concept of eternity. Um, that was just something that was quite hard. Um, so do, do you see that kind of connection as well with the, the religiosity of it that maybe gives it this extra power over people? Conspiracy theories can often be like a Frankenstein's monster where they just cobble together old stuff and rehash them in a, and rebrand them as a, in a new form um, and often piggybacking on current issues like the pandemic uh, to, to give themselves more relevance. So, and 
um, yeah, adding though, adding religious elements can give them more resonance with people, uh, make them more powerful or viral, memorable or spreadable. And I think that's why they, they patch together all these, these old persistent myths and um, rebrand them because the old persistent myths resonate with people as well. Yeah. So let's um, get into your area of expertise with being psychology. Could you tell us the psychology of being misled? Um, I've heard that it's factors like people being anxious about change, their personal life may be falling apart or going through something quite traumatic. What other factors are at play of people that are susceptible to being misled by this stuff? Yeah, people are complex, so there can be different factors. The reason why we saw conspiracy theories explode during the pandemic is because when you have anxiety gripping, you know, a society, that anxiety causes people to be more vulnerable to conspiracy theories because they're looking for order. When something random like a virus randomly transitioning from animals to people happens, randomness makes people uncomfortable. They would actually prefer a more causal, ordered explanation like it being intentional, you know, leaking from a lab or being a weapon of you know, intentionally generated by a hostile government. It sounds counterintuitive, but people actually psychologically find that more comfortable because it's ordered and explainable rather than just random stuff happening to us. So that's why anxiety does make us more vulnerable to conspiracy theories. But more generally, lots of different factors can influence how vulnerable we are to misinformation. It it can often be... Uh, our identity or our beliefs that can make us um, vulnerable. For example, our social identity. If everyone around us believes a certain thing, it, we're very social animals, humans. And so we, that makes us very um, heavily influenced by, by everyone around us to believing the same thing. Yeah, fascinating. And it also makes us uh, resistant to alternative evidence. So, for example, just say... You, all of your friends and family are dismissive of climate change. And then you meet a climate scientist who says, well, I've, here's some evidence that shows that humans are causing climate change. If you were to believe that climate scientist and change your mind about climate change, then suddenly you're out of step with your social group. And that, can't, that can come at a social cost. You can risk being ostracized. You might not even consciously be thinking of it, but there is a there's a social calculation. No, it's like an animalistic defence mechanism. Yeah. Certainly um, social identity can be one factor, but also beliefs can be another factor. For example, again, with climate change, the biggest driver of um, people's attitudes about climate change is their political beliefs because climate change does have political consequences. If burning fossil fuels causes climate change, then we need to do something about burning fossil fuels. We need to transition away from that. And one of the common solutions to achieving that is regulating the fossil fuel industry. Now, a lot of people's political beliefs oppose, they don't like regulation. They want to have free markets. They they believe in deregulation. Uh, And so their political beliefs are threatened by the very problem of climate change. Rather than trying to come up with a solution deregulation, market-friendly solution, Mm. they instead decide to deny that there's a problem in the first place that needs solving. Government meddling in people's business. Mm. 
So we've covered um, psychology and a bit of philosophy, um, thinking about epistemology. Uh, now let's talk about the science. Um, why do people struggle to accept what scientists say in particular? Like, is there an issue of scientific illiteracy? Do scientists have just a communication problem? I think you were touching on that earlier. Why do people trust the science when it comes to boarding an aeroplane, but people will draw the line at things like vaccines? Yeah, it comes down to, again, factors that cause people to deny science. Those factors aren't always relevant depending on the science. Like if it is science and tech that that informed boarding a plane, like that doesn't uh, threaten a person's uh, ideology. If it's the science informing a heat-seeking missile that detects infrared radiation, then that won't necessarily threaten their ideology. But if that same science about infrared radiation is used to understand the greenhouse effect and how it drives climate change, then suddenly they have a problem with the science if their beliefs or their identity uh, is threatened by it. So it can be exactly the same science, but if the science has um, personal consequences, then what that does is it activates people's motivated reasoning. And if they're motivated to reason differently to the science, then they can start getting biased in in whether they um, accept the evidence or not. So do you have any tips for combating misinformation, um, both at a personal level, but, um, but also how would we talk to someone who believes blatantly untrue things? The general answer to that question is help people become aware of the techniques used to mislead them because everyone is averse to being misled. No one likes being tricked. And the beauty of that approach is, or the elegance of it, is that you can, you can explain the techniques of misinformation without having to use a loaded topic like climate change. You can just use, explain the same techniques using generic examples. Uh, in my experiments, we found that when I explained a misleading technique and used tobacco misinformation as the example, we then found that when we use that same misleading technique in climate misinformation, the climate misinformation was no longer effective in misleading people. Oh, wow. Even people who were more vulnerable, like uh, who were on the, the conservative end of the political spectrum and, and they tended to be more persuaded by misinformation in general, whether people are conservative or you know, whether on the, on the right wing or the left wing end of the spectrum, they still don't like being misled. So you can, you can explain the techniques and just build people's critical thinking so then they're less likely to be tricked by these techniques. So use what unites us and not being a fool is one of those things. Yeah, and also everyone would like to think of themselves as critical thinkers, especially conspiracy theorists. They, they're the ones who aren't um, deceived by the government. They're not, they think that everyone else are the sheeple who are just gullible and accepting you know, the mainstream uh, line. But you can appeal to their critical thinking, that commonly held value of critical thinking, and gently encourage them to turn that critical thinking towards their own conspiracy theory. I'm not saying that that's a winning strategy. It's still a hard sell, but that's one possible avenue. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, John, we're going to um, move into a different section of the, the show now. We always like to hear about where people kind of stand with Christianity and thinking through faith and spirituality, these sorts of things, um, whether it's something that shapes who they are, what they do and what they believe, 
or whether it's something that's foreign, unbelievable, maybe irrelevant. You've had a bit more of a complicated journey on that front um, when it comes to faith. Uh, do you want to share a bit of your background and your connections with Christianity? Sure. So um, for most of my life, I've um, been an evangelical since primary school. None of my family are Christians, but I um, started going to a youth group when I was pretty young and then going to evangelical churches for most of my life. Recently, though, I, I've, um, yeah, as you say, I guess complicated is the word you would use. Um, the way I would put it is I found that taking that step of faith has become more difficult over time. So I wouldn't say that I am an atheist. I would say that I I find, I guess, again, taking that step of faith is difficult. Uh, but also I believe that faith is a journey, not a destination. So I still don't know where that journey is going to end up for me. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's an ongoing thing. And, and I, it's hard for me to describe what's happening because... It's uh, it's not a finished picture yet. Yeah, sure. And so I take it for most of your life, reconciling science with faith hasn't been that much of an issue. Um, and it's it seems like it was something else. What, what were some of the factors that maybe changed the way that you were feeling and thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing science, like I've been a scientist for most of my life, and a Christian for most of my life. Never seen a contradiction between that, and I think that to Create a contradiction between them is actually um, misleading and uh, unnecessary. So, for example, I think that it is, it is a misconception that to accept the science of evolution means that you have to become an atheist. Um, I don't think that atheism and evolution are one and the same. And I think that both Christians and atheists, some of them, believe that misconception. And it's, I think it's counterproductive or, or it's just plain false to, to believe that. So, uh, so I've, I've never thought being a scientist was a problem uh, with my faith. It, was, mm. it wasn't about that. And uh, are you happy to go into some of the things that maybe have clouded your view of it um, or that you found difficult to swallow? Or? Yeah, it's, it's, I guess I, the way I would say it is that um, to believe is is to take a step of faith. You can't, there's no such thing as proving the Christian faith. Like, you know, like faith is, I forget the exact wording. I haven't read that verse in a long time about the, you know, belief in something unseen. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yep, Hebrews. <laughs> yep. And, and so it is about taking that step. And I just, over time, just found it more and more difficult to do that. And to the dismay of my wife, who, who still is Christian, um, but, you know, she holds that heart and prays for me, so, so <laughs> maybe those prayers will be answered. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be plenty of other Christians out there praying for you too. <laughs> yeah, thanks, everyone. <laughs> are, there, um, <laughs> are there things that you miss about being part of a Christian community? Yeah, well, I think that probably the, the social community is, is the, the main thing. But, um, you know, like we would have our weekly Bible studies and develop really close friendships, uh, and that's very precious, the main reason why we haven't had that in recent years is not so much because of me and my faith journey. It's more because we moved countries and there was a pandemic. So, <laughs> so I think that we can still um, we can still get that. Yeah, for sure. Plenty of disruption, um, and yeah, plenty of people that have probably gone through similar sorts of questions the last few years. Um, tying it back to the larger topic that we've covered today, uh, do you think Christians are particularly susceptible to believing falsehoods? <laughs> Um, 
I, I think that everyone is susceptible to believing falsehoods if they're motivated to reject the science. So if you if your social identity or your beliefs, whether they're religious beliefs or political beliefs or other beliefs, if they conflict with scientific evidence, then that makes you vulnerable to rejecting the science. Uh, and so, yes, Christians are vulnerable, but, you know, we all are to some degree. And, and again, I think it comes back to that idea. We need to check ourselves, check that we aren't exhibiting the the techniques of misinformation. Uh, and earlier you asked about the difference between misinformation and disinformation. The ways to spot misinformation is to look for those techniques used to mislead, techniques like cherry-picking. Someone can intentionally try to deceive you by cherry-picking data, just, just picking the bits of data that paint one picture and ignoring all the evidence that paints the fuller, more accurate picture. But also, if we're biased, then we will naturally, through confirmation bias, just gravitate towards the evidence that confirms our beliefs and resist the evidence that contradicts our beliefs. And so we all need to be looking for those techniques. And I do it. We all do it. If we hear evidence that um, someone's attacking someone that we trust or, or admire or vote for, um, we will instantly, well, you know, be sceptical of that evidence. And then if we hear evidence that attacks someone that we dislike, we're more likely to believe that. Yeah, very tribal. I've, I've caught myself doing that too, and I have to always think, all right, just because they're criticising someone I dislike or, or criticising someone I like, I, I, I shouldn't let my, pre, you know, my pre-existing beliefs influence how I um, judge that evidence. Uh, and as we get closer to the end, um, are there things that make you hopeful uh, about this kind of age of disinformation? Hopeful. <laughs> I'm probably a more of a glass half empty kind of person. What I, I guess excites me is seeing other people also working in this area, really clever people coming up with very clever solutions to misinformation that can be scaled up in very practical ways. And, and actually shift the needle in the real world. So, like, I've been working on this Cranky Uncle game, which, and, and I'm quite excited by the fact that we're now collecting data showing that it makes a difference and it helps people not only spot misinformation better, but also identify and believe facts um, more as well. So it's helping people distinguish between fact and myth. But there are other people also coming up with really clever games and other videos and other solutions using this kind of similar kinds of techniques and making headway, like they're getting them deployed, you know, at scale. And so my hope is that we can continue to, I know that misinformation has been exploding, but I'm hoping that um, the efforts to counter them are also growing in scale. And um, to close out, do you have some recommendations, three resources for anyone that's wanting to find out more about critical thinking, misinformation, disinformation, epistemology, these sorts sure, of things? Sure, three examples um, or three sources. So the, the self-serving sources would be crankyuncle.com, which is where not only do we have the Cranky Uncle game, but also I post a lot of critical thinking posts on there as well. If you're interested in climate misinformation or how to counter it, there's skepticalscience.com skeptical spelt with a K, just a wealth of scientific information about not only how climate change works, but how the misinformation distorts climate science. And thirdly, um, I would recommend thinkingispower.com, 
which is a it's a website created by uh, Professor Melanie Tressa King in the US, and she's developed all these really clever critical thinking resources, helping people to spot pseudoscience methods and, and misinformation methods. She teaches this stuff in in her classes, and she's creating resources for other educators to use them as well. Excellent. Well, uh, that brings us to the end. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. It's been a lot of fun. Learned a lot. Thanks for, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was great to talk to you. How do we know what we know? And how can we be sure? The importance of epistemology seems as vital as ever with the proliferation of falsehoods, conspiracy theories and half-truths wearing down our defences and our resolve to work hard at finding and discerning truth. I imagine that almost all of us carry a degree of confidence that we see the world clearly, with objectivity and precision, particularly in those areas that we naturally gravitate towards, spending hours each day thinking about and wanting to find out more. The problem is, though, our minds naturally long for certain narratives to be true, and often we'll look for evidence that backs it up from within our social groups and tribal identities, regardless of its truthfulness. And unless we're a trained expert in a particular subject matter, we won't necessarily have the tools needed to ensure that our level of understanding matches our confidence. And so it takes discipline, introspection, and a high degree of self-awareness to question our own presuppositions, the things we take for granted, and the people that we deem authoritative. Our most trusted sources and our favourite commentators or media personalities can seem quite persuasive at face value especially when their claims get us fired up or make us feel like we know what's really going on. But we always need to ask if they're telling the full story. And we need to question, what if they're wrong? What if I'm wrong? What if the people outside my comfort zone and who see the world very differently are in fact the ones doing the careful, honest and painstaking work of finding out and discerning what's true? What if I took them at face value when their claims correspond to reality better? What would that mean? A phrase that seems to come up a lot more nowadays is epistemic humility, where we can be open to persuasion, yet critical of our own processes before we jump to conclusions. Asking ourselves, why am I persuaded of this argument or that particular take? Is it because my tribe says so? Is it because it fits my worldview? Is it because I desperately want or need it to be true? And turning that in on myself, it's meant that I've come to question some of the things that are taken for granted in my evangelical tribe. When I see some Christians falling for misinformation, disinformation and conspiracy theories, it can feel really disorienting and a little bit harder to know who my tribe is. And while I'm absolutely still a committed and intellectually satisfied Christian, I'll freely admit that there have been times where I've questioned it all, where I've asked myself, what if Christianity is just an elaborate hoax? The old wish fulfillment chestnut. What if I only believe Christianity because I want it to be true? Maybe you've asked that question or made that accusation either from inside or outside of the Christian faith. And Christianity is surprisingly accommodating and fertile ground for a person working through their doubts. One of my favourite authors, Oz Guinness, he writes that Christianity places a premium on the absolute truthfulness and trustworthiness of God. So understanding doubt is extremely important to a Christian. The person who knows why he believes is also in a position to discover why he doubts. The world of Christian faith is not a fairy tale, make-believe world, question-free and problem-proof, but a world where doubt is never far from faith's shoulder. And we all have doubts, right? No worldview is watertight and free of inconsistencies or niggling queries that haven't quite been reconciled. And following on from that, we'd all have questions when it comes to our personal approaches of seeing and understanding the world, putting ourselves under the microscope and why we believe what we believe. This stuff matters, 
and surely we want it to be based on truth. One of the things I love about Christianity is the way in which the Bible actually puts all the cards on the table and opens itself up to criticism, saying that the central tenet of Christianity is falsifiable and its legitimacy is dependent on historical evidence, events and records. It's not some elusive authority constantly changing the goalposts and asking for unlimited blind faith. Sure, there's a lot of mystery and parts of faith where we do go in blind, but ultimately Christianity stakes itself on an actual and historical conspiracy. The conspiracy to have God's son, the Christ, murdered and forgotten by the religious elites and the Romans of that day, which absolutely happened. But he didn't stay in the grave. Instead, defying death and having left his tomb after three days. And Christianity hinges on this. Check out what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So he's saying if Christ was just a man, just a moral teacher, then you might as well pack it up and go home. Christianity has nothing to offer if it's not true. You might as well forget about it. And though people try to keep him dead and buried, he's been alive, irrepressible, the single biggest force for change in the world, and won't be forgotten anytime soon. You can claim that it's a myth, but it's worth checking your own presuppositions, and perhaps whether you're wishing for it to not be true. Because when you look at the world's leading historians, they say Jesus existed and that his body was never found, and that the church exploded shortly after, and the apostles all died for their belief that Christ was God himself and rose again, which makes the death and resurrection pretty compelling. So I'll leave that one with you. One thing I want to wrap up with is just to say that it's easy to become pretty disillusioned with how polarised our world is and how people can look at the same historical events, the same stats, the same studies, the same video footage even, and still reach wildly different conclusions. Obviously, there are some pretty wild and dangerous beliefs out there, propagated by people that deliberately misrepresent, skew data, and intend to deceive. But I want to practice being gracious to people that I wildly disagree with, no matter how fringe or crazy. Because crazy beliefs don't fully represent the person either. And it's amazing how much we can all live with the level of cognitive dissonance. I mean, I'm sure I get heaps of things wrong too. And I hope people can be gracious to me when I'm floating a flawed argument or bad intel. What's more, people can change their minds too. But it will never happen from a position of smugness or scorn. You want to change someone's mind? Well, you better love them first. I think that's why Jesus was able to change the world. Love your neighbour. Love your enemies. Even if they're the same person. Even if they believe the moon landing was a hoax. Anyway, it was great chatting to John today. And while our paths have veered in different directions, and he's no doubt deeply missed from within the evangelical community... I love that he knows his journey isn't over yet, and neither is ours. I used to be, and still am, a huge X-Files fan, and while this is an absolutely overused quote, I agree that the truth is out there, that it's able to be found when we apply that epistemic humility. But even better than the X-Files, Jesus says the truth will set you free, and so I hope you'll join us in committing to find it and cherishing it when you do. This is Deeper Questions.
If you like this episode, then subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can check out some of our other content at thirdspace.org.au. Thank you.